And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am John McKenzie and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing good, John. How are you? I am doing really well because we've just had a brilliant recording with our good pal, uh, a fellow TIFO employee, Abhishek Raj, talking all about football finances. And I know you enjoyed this podcast episode as well. So what did you enjoy most about it? I, I think for me, it's when we look at football clubs and finances, we kind of look at it from a, a backseat view where uh, we don't know the inner workings of kind of clubs balance sheets, uh, raising money. Um, and I think Abhishek kind of, when people listen to this, I think they're going to get a real insight of exactly how complex um, these finances are within the clubs. So I'm actually looking forward to to hearing what these listeners think and and what they take away from it. But I I think that for me, it was, wow, there's so much more going on than than meets the eye because we're we're so used to seeing... um, you know the, these transfer fees and all that but we don't necessarily see the wages and we don't necessarily see all the different league rules because um you know abishak talks about how la liga has different rules for barcelona than maybe say you know premier league has for manchester united and chelsea so i think for me that's what's really interesting and abishak dives really deep into that hmm. Yeah, and we've touched on, I think, the big points of football finance, the big clubs that are in the public eye at the moment. So we talk about Manchester United, we talk about Barcelona, we talk about Chelsea, and we talk about Arsenal. And there's plenty of things to get excited about there, I think, particularly if you're an Arsenal fan. So yeah, if you're an Arsenal fan, stick around for some good news at the end. But I think without further ado, let's just jump straight into the episode. So we're joined by a very exciting guest today. We are joined by Abhishek Raj. Abhishek, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. It's very good to be here. Now, by day, Abhishek is an associate partner at Bain and Company, a management consultancy firm. But by night, he's a freelance writer for TIFO, and he focuses on the financial side of football, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today, because football finance is clearly a massive aspect of the modern game. At the time of recording, which I should say is July the 14th, nearly £2 billion have been spent this window in the big five European leagues, according to the Guardian website. So that is going to be our topic today. We're going to talk all things football finance. So what you should have to look forward to in this episode are how to assess the financial health of a football club, Manchester United's takeover, Barcelona's ongoing mess, what are Chelsea doing and how can Arsenal afford all of these players. But let's begin by asking a general question because Abhishek, we've got your expertise on the show today. So I wanted to pose to you a few general questions about how it is that you assess the financial health of a football team. So can you just talk to us a little bit about what your process is when you're trying to assess how well a team are doing on the financial side of things? Yeah, that's a great question, John. And actually, it's a good place to start because I think as we go into specific clubs, you'll actually see specific elements of um, these these 
this list of things that I'm going to talk about come to life. So broadly, I look at four things. Two of them are related to the operating performance of the club, which is kind of the day-to-day footballing performance, uh, financial footballing performance. And two are more forward-looking, related to kind of planning and, and how clubs think about transfers and, and uh, their, their sources of funds and things like that. So the first two, which are more operating day-to-day, I'm going to start with revenue. And I look at two things here. I actually look at the revenue mix, which is across the three broad streams of revenue. So if I define that as match day income, broadcasting income and commercial income, which are the three broad revenue streams for a football club, is there actually a good healthy mix between the three? That's a sign of a fairly healthy, stable football club. Bayern Munich are actually a very good example of this, where they have a fairly steady 15-20% match day income, 30-35% broadcasting income, 50-55% commercial income mix, which has actually stayed stable for the last decade. The second thing I look at on revenue is growth which is year on year, how is the revenue actually growing? Now, obviously, revenue is choppy. There are good years where clubs win trophies and they get more. And then there are not so good years, right? But even given that, over a five to seven year period, I look at a nine to 10% revenue growth and say that's pretty healthy, nine to 10% each year, that is. Again, Bayern Munich, a good example. They've grown at 9% every year over the last decade. So that's great. The second thing I look at day to day. So as I said, those are the two on revenue, which is mix and uh, growth. The second day to day element is wages. Specifically on wages, I look at three things. The wage cap, which is the maximum wage paid to a single player at the club. The wage distribution, which is the spread of wages across the squad. And the wage inflation, which is actually the growth in the overall wage bill or squad cost, however you want to define it, over the years. Right um, Now, the, the flip side of this is when this goes wrong, this is actually the first indicator of poor financial health and, and leads to subsequent uh issues financially for football clubs right so uh a common mistake we see here is when new owners come into football clubs and they think they can actually change the wage structure overnight bring in a lot of top players and just completely disrupt the squad harmony because the spread in the wages is just too high queen's park rangers are actually a good example of this where this happened and well not good example as it as it turns out uh, of, of where this happened and didn't go so well I actually think Manchester City and Bayern Munich, again, are good examples of clubs that have managed this well. So they have a healthy wage cap, decent wage distribution for clubs that are challenging for domestic titles and Champions Leagues. Wage inflation, again, this uh, is choppy because obviously players come and go, wages go down, go up. But you want, ideally, over a five to seven year period, again, the wage inflation to be slightly slower than the revenue growth. So if the revenue growth number we spoke about was 9 to 10% each year, I would want wage inflation to be 7 to 8% at most, right? Slightly less than that. Arsenal are actually a good example of a club that have managed this really well. They haven't played Champions League football for the last five years. 2016-17 was the last time they were in the Champions League. So they realized very quickly they would need to manage down costs smartly. And they've actually done that quite well. So Arsenal's, uh, we'll talk about Arsenal spending obviously later, John. But one of the reasons why they can is because they've actually managed the wages really well. So their wage to turnover is 58%, which is actually very low. Perfect. So those are the two day-to-day ones. And the two longer-term ones, the first one is transfer effectiveness. So here again, I look at um, on on the buying side as well as the selling side. On the selling side, it's fairly simple. You look at income from player sales. And this is a fairly simple metric. It's it's tracked quite well and and clubs report it, obviously. Um, And it's a good indicator of whether clubs are actually able to move players on successfully. On the buying side, it's a little trickier because obviously you can argue... There, there are various ways to value players. And if you really want to be at the top, you sometimes have to pay very high valuations for players. Having said that, I think there are a few things that stand out. Firstly, the footballing structure at a club. 
specifically around recruitment it's a good indicator of this so are they able to actually find players who are near the end of their contracts for example at the current club which would obviously reduce the valuation at which they can be bought are they able to solve for the future by actually building a squad which has a good balance between current top players or first team players and actually players who can come into it organically over a period of time and therefore they would be cheaper if you buy them younger Cl- clubs that recruit actually very smartly from the lower leagues or from other parts of europe maybe the french league the belgian league or the portuguese league for example very smartly identifying players that fit roles in that team that maybe don't have as high valuation today the fourth element again more forward looking long term is debt and finance cost again here uh, it's talked about a lot debt is almost like a bad word in the in the football um, community but i don't actually think debt by itself is bad right so there are two things to to ask when you look at uh, debt for a football club the first is why did they actually raise the debt what are they using it for i generally feel like if you're raising debt for physical assets which is like to buy a stadium for example or to buy improve uh, the training ground and and training infrastructure i think that's great actually right so debt for capital investment is usually a good thing because you're actually creating a revenue generating asset that's a long term revenue generating asset right tottenham hotspur's new stadium is actually a very good example of that debt raised for the building of a strong commercial asset debt raised purely for player transfers is a little more risky because you're not necessarily sure that will actually lead to revenue growth or additional revenue going forward especially if that money is not spent wisely and we'll talk about a few examples of that and then of course there is debt raised effectively for the privilege of having the glazers as the owners of of, of a football club we'll talk about that as well shortly right um the second thing is is how much does that debt cost because if you're raising debt at say bank loan interest rates that's great that's fantastic and usually long term debt which is 20 25 years long like the the tottenham debt for example on the stadium it's actually well financed in that it's not a very high interest rate per year and and actually you're giving it enough time then for the stadium to grow and achieve full potential and the additional earning that the stadium creates more than compensates the interest payment so that's actually well structured debt i would say whereas uh, the, again i go back to the manchester united takeover because it unfortunately is a good example of debt badly done uh hedge fund loans or payment in kind loans are actually very dangerous debt so what does that mean hedge fund loans come at very high interest rates so if a bank loan is at 4 5% per year a hedge fund loan would be 15 16% per year so that's already three times as much interest that you're paying and secondly payment in kind loans are basically where you're paying off the interest by taking more debt effectively so it's it's a dangerous thing because it cascades over time and again when manchester united were bought a lot of those loans were payment in kind loans So these are the four things John at the highest level that I look at and it can actually reveal a lot about football clubs and as we go through I'll I'll actually refer back to this and highlight where specific elements come through for the clubs we talk about. Hmm. Yeah, you've mentioned a lot of metrics there. How easy is it for you to get hold of this data? Is it easily available for just public public individuals? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So the good thing is actually for the larger clubs, the larger Premier League, most of the Premier League clubs actually, they report a lot of this. So even if uh, they're not actually publicly listed companies manchester united of course is publicly listed so they would have a lot more information they'd have analysts writing about it that there'd be a lot on clubs like that but even privately owned entities like a manchester city actually release fairly elaborate financial statements so when you go through it you can usually find these metrics quite easily right um the other thing that that i would um, i i would actually strongly uh, urge people to do um is is go and just um uh, i guess once you have your your list of metrics just literally google the club with with the metrics that you want to find you'll actually find a lot of these things on the club's websites so it may be in an investor presentation for example barcelona release 
investor presentations that are quite detailed, maybe somewhere else. But you get a lot of this information uh, through sort of smart secondary research as well. So that's all of the theory stuff. Let's move on to the much more interesting practical side of things. And uh, you've mentioned Manchester United, you've mentioned debt. So let's get into that. So at the moment, Manchester United quite interesting because they are currently in in the process of going through a takeover bid. So the Glazers announced that they put the club on the market back in November of last year. And then since then, there's been two leading candidates in the race to buy this side. So we've got on the one hand, the Qatari billionaire, Sheikh Yassim bin Hamad Al Thani, who's lodged a bid which could see him buy 100% of the club. And then that would mean that the Glazers would be out. Whereas Sir Jim Ratcliffe, the uh, chief of Ineos, he's put up a 60% offer on the table. And that would keep the door open for the Americans to remain a little bit. So I think the big question we should be asking is why is it that the Glazers have decided to sell at this point in time? Yeah, I think that's a that that's absolutely the right question to ask, and that's the right place to start. I think it's it's good to actually first set a little bit of context around the Glazer ownership and the rationale for why they actually bought Manchester United in the first place. The Glazers very much have, pretty much through their uh, entire ownership, have looked at Manchester United as a cash generating machine. That's that's basically what it is to them. So when they originally bought the club, uh, they took a lot of debt to get that deal over the line. So a lot of this, of course, has been extensively written and spoken about. But briefly, it was a leveraged buyout, which means they took Manchester United's debt overnight from 110 million to 660 million. And uh, it's it's almost like saying I bought a car by borrowing money on the car. So the so the the asset that you bought actually has to pay back the debt, right? So it's literally just debt taken for the privilege of having the Glazers as owners. Now they've obviously got a lot of money out of Manchester United over the last 15, 16 years. But if you look at now, right, the, the time now, it's actually an interesting time in, in a few different ways. And, and that's why they're actually looking for investment. Now, they've actually been looking for an investor since 2019, John. That's when they started the hunt, the end of 2019, around December 2019. It's been a couple of years now, it's three years now, and they haven't actually been able to find an investor for a very simple reason. No investor effectively wants to buy a minority stake in Manchester United, where the Glazers will be running the club day to day. It's almost like paying money for a car that someone else is going to drive. So you want controlling stake, right? And 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 that's been the issue so far in, in, in the hunt that they've had. But they also haven't been looking very seriously until very recently. Why did they start looking seriously recently? A few reasons. One, if you look at the cash generating engines of Manchester United, let's look at match day income, broadcasting and commercial. Commercial revenue has actually been flat for the last five years. It's going to marginally go up next year, I think. But Otherwise, for the five years before that, it's basically been flat, right? So that's the first that's the first engine and, and healthy engine for Manchester United, which is actually now tapped out a little bit. The second is broadcasting income. Now, broadcasting or TV income is actually directly proportional to how well the club's actually doing uh, in, in both domestic competition as well as European competition. Manchester United haven't had the best five years domestically or in Europe, right? So obviously, that's also another stream of revenue which is not firing as strongly as it potentially could. The third stream of revenue there is match day income, where again, they're facing an issue now because Old Trafford's reached levels where it needs serious investment, right? So if I think about it from the Glazer perspective, they're basically saying, look, we have two choices. One, we significantly invest behind the club now, specifically the stadium. Now, remember, if Old Trafford needs investment, they have to move to another stadium. So there'll be a transition period. Match day income will probably drop and then pick up again over time. And they'll have to raise debt 
to to actually reinvest the stadium now if you do that you're basically committing another 10 15 years as owners of the club because otherwise you won't actually see the return on that investment you'll make the investment but then somebody else will see the return so they don't they weren't inclined to commit to that kind of duration that's the first hypothesis again we're all hypothesizing but that seems a fairly reliable hypothesis in my head because the glazers have always looked at united as i said as a cash engine if the cash dries up it's it's probably a good time the second thing that's happened here is they've seen what's happened with the chelsea sale which is actually a distressed sale but happened at 2.5 billion dollars of valuation right now that's a 5x revenue multiple on what was a distressed sale right which means basically the the sellers didn't really have as much leverage negotiating leverage right if i apply the same 5x multiple to manchester united's revenue that's already between 3 and 4 billion uh, pounds and if i think about it from the glazers perspective they don't really have to sell so they actually have more negotiating leverage so the way they're thinking about it is the chelsea valuation actually set the floor in some sense and if the floor is 3 to 4 billion as i said for based on manchester united's revenue they are thinking if we get 5 6 7 billion for this it's it's fantastic right the third thing i think that's happened john if you look at it, um the last i would say year maybe two years we've seen a lot of interest both from american owners or potential owners as well as other parts of the world right the middle east especially in actually owning premier league clubs now that may not be purely for the club as an asset it may be for other reasons but whatever the motivations there is a lot of interest that's come up now and i think the glazers are very very aware of this they saw liverpool also publicly declare that they were looking potentially for investment and they said hey hang on if chelsea have been sold liverpool have declared interest we better move quickly because the number of people who can afford manchester united is finite right and and that actually triggered the acceleration of the process they hired the same investment company that managed the chelsea sale to to manage the process for them this is the rain investment group and and that's why they they're looking to sell effectively we've talked a lot there about valuation i think this is quite an interesting topic um because as you mentioned there are a lot of american investors coming in to buy clubs at the moment and the idea i suppose would be that they see clubs as assets which will increase in value over time so we saw todd bowley and clear like capital buying chelsea um with the idea that you know they can multiply the value of that club in a short space of time so let's talk a little bit about how you would value manchester united and whether or not you think that buying a club like manchester united can actually work out as a profit making uh, enterprise yeah that's a, again uh, a very relevant question to ask and and also why the glazers are holding out right for for larger bids so there are three or four ways that i would look at valuing manchester united john so the first is the most obvious one perhaps is just to use the share price so if i look at the current share price it's about $22.80 manchester united have 165 million outstanding shares so that simple math gets us to about 3.7 billion dollars or about 2.9 to 3 billion pounds right so that's the first approach which is just basically market capitalization based on the share price the second approach is what we call enterprise value so basically i take the same market capitalization i just calculated and i add what's called net financial debt now what is net financial debt it basically means the gross financial debt of the club less the cash balance basically you take out the cash from it right so manchester united have a gross financial debt as per the latest financials they released of 725 million pounds and a cash balance of 75 million pounds so effectively that's a net financial debt of 650 million pounds which i would add then to the market capitalization of 2.9 to 3 it gets me to about 3.6 to 3.7 billion pounds that's the second approach to value united 
The third that I would look at is uh, what we call a multiples approach in the industry. So uh, effectively, you could do this based on profit or based on revenue. For football clubs, profit is generally not as reliable a metric for various reasons. One, a lot of football clubs actually are negative profit, so you can't even use profit multiples. Secondly, profits can actually be manipulated artificially through player amortization. We'll talk about Chelsea in a bit, and we'll talk about how that works. Revenue, by, by contrast, is always positive, and it's actually less easy to mess with. Right? So revenue is a more sort of stable metric generally over time and a more reliable metric to use. So we'll use revenue multiples, right? Manchester United, as I said, there are many ways you could think about the revenue multiple. If you look at historical sales of Premier League clubs uh, and top Premier League clubs, the revenue multiples used have been between sort of two and three. But I guess the Chelsea sale is the right base to look at, right? Because that's the most recent one. And Chelsea's sale uh, actually was at a revenue multiple, as I said, of five, right? So five times. So Chelsea's revenue was 480 million pounds. They were sold for 2.5 billion. So it's about a 5.2-ish multiple. If I apply exactly that number to Manchester United's revenue outlook for 22-23, which is 640 million pounds, that again gets me to about three to 3.2-ish million uh, billion pounds, right, as the number. So whichever way you come at it, we basically land somewhere between three and four billion pounds as the actual commercial worth of Manchester United as a financial asset. But again, the trick with valuation is a, a club's always worth as much as someone's willing to pay for it. Right, and uh, if I think about who is bidding, right? Let's let's talk about Sheikh Jassim, for example. Manchester United may be worth way more actually to 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 him than just the, the footballing uh, assets of the club, or or even the financial elements that come from the football club itself. It could be a way to put Qatar on the global map. It could be Qatari tourism. There could be various underlying motivations there that actually make it financially viable. So, if you ask me purely from a financial perspective. Manchester United is probably not worth more than three to four billion pounds, right? And and if you look at noteworthy other secondary sources like Forbes, for example, valued Manchester United at, at three point seven billion pounds. Um, Bloomberg actually did a their own discounted cash flow model where they modeled Manchester United's cash flows and said it's actually not worth more than two billion pounds, right? So that, that, there's a wide range you see there, but no one's actually gone beyond this three to four billion number. That, so that's probably the most well optimistic range of valuation if you look at it purely as a financial asset. But again, you hear the Glazers are holding out for more than five, more than six billion pounds. And, and the reason probably is they know what it's worth to the people bidding. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We should talk a little bit about the Glazers in more detail because you've mentioned debt and the Glazers are very unpopular around Manchester. So can you talk to us a little bit about why that is the case and the financial underpinnings in particular of that? Yeah. So... John, actually, I, I think two stats summarize exactly why the Glazers are so unpopular better than, than anything else I could come up with. The first is, 
over the 16 years of Glazer ownership, Manchester United have paid £750 million in interest payments. The other 19 Premier League clubs put together in the same period of time have paid £850 million in interest payments. So, Manchester United alone have paid 90% as much interest as the other 19 clubs put together in that period of time. And, and the bigger problem, as I said with this, is what are they even paying the interest for? It's actually not to build a new stadium. It's not to even buy players, right? Because the transfer debt is a whole separate other beast that, that we haven't talked about, right? The debt is literally because of the original debt taken to finance the Glazer ownership of the club. So it's almost like Manchester United are paying most of their interest for the privilege of having the Glazers as owners, right? So that's the first issue here. And, that, and that's rightfully why Manchester United fans, th- there's a lot of anger towards the Glazers because of that. The second stat is if I look at net owner funding, over the last 10 years, right? And I'm defining that as loans received from owners, share capital received from owners where owners have bought shares. And I'm taking out any dividends that their owners have taken because obviously that's negative owners taking money out of the club. If I look at Manchester City, it's 515 million pounds in the last 10 years. And remember, Manchester City were bought 15 years ago. So it's not like the last 10 years were the first 10 years of the, the ownership, right? It was five years into uh, the ownership of, of Sheikh Mansour, right? But still, £515 million for Manchester City, £580 million for Chelsea in the last 10 years. This includes both Abramovich as well as the Bowley Clear Lake Consortium. Everton, Farhad Mushiri, £680 million put into the club in the last 10 years. If I look at Manchester United, it's minus, minus £175 million, right? And that is... Minus 20 million pounds because of a share buyback. A share buyback is effectively where they made the club buy shares back from them and paid them 20 themselves 20 million pounds. And minus 155 million pounds in dividends. So the Glazers have effectively taken out 175 million pounds from the club. And in the same time, Sheikh Mansour has pumped 515 million pounds into Manchester City. So if you think about the, the levels of the two clubs, it's, it's almost like United are trying to compete with an arm and two fingers behind their backs, right? Held behind their backs in, in this fight against Man City. And that's another reason why there's a lot of frustration and, and a lot of anger towards the Glazers, right? So these two metrics, in my opinion, really kind of epitomize Glazer ownership. They haven't put any of their own money into the club. They've taken out a lot of money because, as I said, that was the primary motivation to own the club in the first place. And now they're delaying the sale process, which is actually a little, like, inexplicable. So uh, despite... The bids being actually quite strong, right? If you if you look at the reporting done by the Athletic, it's upwards of five billion. Sheikh Jassim's bid close to six billion. If you think about the investment into the community, but they're still holding out. This may be potentially a stupid question, but obviously from a footballing side, that approach to a football club is not great. But it seems like from a financial point of view, the Glazers have made a lot of money out of Manchester United. And so my question would be why. Do we not see more owners approach club ownership in that way by leveraging it using using debt and then basically creaming off the dividends? Is it simply the case that there's only a very few clubs where that would work for them? Yeah, that's a that's a that's an interesting question and a good one, John. So I think the first good thing that I want to call out is leverage buyouts are now no longer allowed to 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 buy a football club. So that's that's great actually, right? And and uh, it shouldn't the Manchester United sale to the Glazers shouldn't have gone through in its original form the way it did. So it's, it's good to see that that's now not going to happen. Uh, and, and I also think 
that it's it's good that now there is a tighter due diligence process in place for new owners coming into ownership at any club right so when newcastle for example were taken over there were a lot of questions about the motivations of the owners why are they investing etc and i think what was found was they actually had very good intentions for the club right given football is so woven into the fabric of the community everywhere locally right i think it's it's very important that this due diligence continues to happen now that's the first thing that will prevent what you're talking about which is uh, it it should weed out potential owners who want to use it for personal financial gain and the second point you said is absolutely valid which is manchester united were a, a rare asset at that point in time that were i mean if if you think about when the glazers bought it manchester united were the best club uh, in the premier league they were obviously doing reasonably well in europe so alex was uh, again at the helm and, and making sure that they had the best players ronaldo rooney etc right so it was a good time uh, and and they knew they would get they would make a lot of money from it right so the cash generation potential was significant they had also seen a lot of what they done with the franchises that they own in in america and they they saw that potential in football so they realized that this whole idea of really revamping commercial ownership having different sponsors in different geographies different sponsors for different products i mean manchester united have an instant noodles partner john in in southeast asia right like i, I don't know any other football club that has an instant noodles sponsorship partner and why more importantly but hey it's it's revenue right that they're generating and they can take out as dividends so i think um the glazers were savvy in the way that they operated so to answer your question i think that i i i think is is fair to kind of give them that but i also think that with the new processes in place i don't think we'll see it i don't think we'll see owners being able to come in and just use a football club for personal gain anymore and and that's a good thing Well, let's move on to another club who have been pretty interesting over the last year in particular, and that is Barcelona. So Barcelona were the flavour of the month last summer because they were the most interesting club from a financial point of view. And I think a lot of this boils down to this idea that, that Barcelona are in a certain degree of financial trouble when it comes to squad building uh, because they have what is in, called a squad cost limit imposed upon them by yeah. La Liga and the reality is that La Liga has a preemptive FFP control which prohibits the registration of players unless you're within a certain limit which is a little bit different to a lot of other leagues I think where actually the those are punished uh, after the fact those those uh, FFP um misdemeanors so Barcelona last summer were in a situation where they had to be very careful about their finances in order to be able to register players to appear for them in the coming season and it's gone a little bit quiet over at Barcelona I think because people are used to the idea now that Barcelona are in that kind of trouble but what's going on now Abhishek is it still the case presumably that that squad cost limit is in play Barcelona still have to be very careful with their finances in order to register the players that they are bringing in this summer Yeah. No, absolutely and 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 it is very much the case that they they still need to be quite careful with that. So the latest data uh, which which actually is based on estimates that Barcelona provided La Liga in December last year. So the way it works is Barcelona will will provide an estimate to La Liga of how much money they're likely to make this season. La Liga will then use that to set a squad cost limit. So Barcelona per that were actually 200 million euros over the squad cost limit set by La Liga. So they said look with the income estimates that Barcelona have submitted they should have a squad cost of 400 million euros they actually have a squad cost of over 600 million euros so they need to bridge a 200 million euro gap and that gap has actually now led to La Liga basically saying Barcelona will not be able to register new players until they do something about it i think since then a few things have happened that are good which is one 
obviously they won La Liga. So I don't know what they had estimated when they submitted those projections to La Liga. But had they not estimated the La Liga win, they may not have. That's potentially additional income that they weren't planning for. So that naturally raises the allowable limit and, and cuts into that gap a little bit. The second thing that's happened is uh, high-earning players have now left the club. So players like Jordi Alba, Sergio Busquets, especially these two, uh, who were individually actually more than 5% of the total wage bill. So each of them, that is, right? So the fairly sizable wage reductions that have happened there. And Gerard Piquet is retired as well, right? So these are three players who, because they've moved on, uh, that's created further flexibility in that, right? But having said that, John, Absolutely, it remains a priority for Barcelona to look for more ways to bridge that gap. They need to bridge that gap. As an example, there are actually players waiting in the wings who don't have professional contracts registered with La Liga yet. So, Gavi, for example, who's now a core part of Barcelona's first team, his contract is still a youth contract, right? Because his professional contract has not been registered uh, with La Liga as yet. Ronald Arujo, who they extended to 2026, is actually, again, a very important player. They've not been able to register his contract, right? Um, so these are fairly important young players, critical for the future of the club that they haven't been able to register. So I think they have two choices, the way I see it, in terms of signing new players, right? One is they need to offload players on the squad that aren't playing as much, like in some way or the other. They've done well by offloading some high earners, but I think they need to continue doing that. The second is they need to think about an alternate source of income. Now, last year, obviously, they pulled a number of financial levers, which has been written about extensively. And we can talk about that as well, John, um, on on sort of the sale of future TV rights and the sale of Barca Studios. They're looking at another one of those. So they're basically looking at selling 49% of Barca licensing and merchandising, which to me is, again, risky because you're giving up future revenue for revenue today. But if they do that, that's 300 million pounds that they could potentially get. 300 million euros, sorry. Right? So that's sizable. Again, completely wipes that dent away if they choose to do that. But even with, if, if we assume they do nothing and, and where they are today, I think they will just about be able to register Ilkay Gundogan, which is good because they obviously brought him in. They haven't registered him yet, but now they will be able to. The second um, important transfer for them is Vitor Roque, but I, I don't know if they will be able to register because I think his the, the total cost of that transfer is 45 million euros. And I'm not entirely sure they will be able to absorb that. So based on some back-of-the-envelope math that I did, they have about 50 million euros of, of flexibility. And um, based on what I've read online, that's that's broadly kind of in line, right? If they don't take further steps. Now, obviously, I expect Barcelona to do something about it and take further steps because they do want to remain competitive. You don't want to be in a position where you weaken the team. Again, they underwhelm in the Champions League or they risk losing La Liga, right? Which is, they went through a three-year period where they didn't win La Liga, which was unthinkable almost for, for Barcelona before um, before 2017-18, I think was the last time uh, they, they won it before that. So, I think, uh, is, there a, is there a lot of work to be done still? Yes, 100%, there's a lot of work to be done. The club is over a billion dollars, actually, uh, a billion euros, sorry, in debt. They are by far, actually, the, 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 they have the largest gross financial debt of any football club in Europe. They pay the most interest already. And they're actually taking out another loan now. Uh, and luckily, it's a long-term loan. So it's actually well-structured. We spoke about that earlier, right? So it's a long-term loan with a good interest rate. But it's a 1.45 billion uh, euro loan on the stadium to, to actually like rebuild and, and invest in the stadium, which is good because it's needed. But again, that, that will come with its own additional interest burden right? going forward. So 
I think that's the first problem. The second problem, as I said, is they're still spending a lot on on transfers, and uh, the wage bill is also very high. There's seventy three percent of income now uh, on on wages, player wages, player and staff wages alone, which is very high. So if I compare that to a Manchester City, for example, Manchester City are at fifty seven percent, so which is much more healthy and gives them a lot more flexibility uh, to do other things, right? So that's uh, that that's sort of the 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 lowdown on where they are. There is still a lot of work to be done. Obviously, the La Liga win was good. It should give them some more flexibility, but that doesn't change the fact that it's papering over cracks that exist, right? And and in some cases, are actually getting wider because the debt's going to go up. Yeah. So I've got two questions here. I want to want I want to ask one about the past, and I want to ask one about the future. So in terms of the past, you're talking here about a huge amount of financial gymnastics that Barcelona have to go through every window in order to justify registering players, which is a nightmare for a football club. So how did things? end up getting this badly for Barcelona? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good question. I think it goes back to the 2017-18 the season, the start of that season when they sold Neymar to, to PSG. I think that that was the start of it. They made a lot of money on that sale, obviously. And I don't think they spent any of it very well at all. Right. So, uh, they, they basically overspent on a bunch of players. So, obviously, Dembele and Coutinho came in in that window. They're the ones that are most talked about. But then there's a whole host of other players they brought into the squad without really thinking about squad balance, roles, where, where those players would play, without really making enough of an attempt to integrate them. Nelson Semedo, Malcolm, Paulinha. There's so many examples of players that um, that they brought in at that time that actually just didn't work. Marco Correa, Luca Dean, Gary Mina, there's so many. So, And this is actually over multiple seasons. Uh, and and then they they got into this mindset of okay we've had a bad year we didn't win La Liga let's make sure we protect the best players right and and then they signed on players like Lionel Messi Sergio Busquets Jordi Alba Gerard Pique on very expensive contracts in a bid to protect them and tie them down what that did was it completely messed up the wage structure so you you changed the wage cap you changed the wage distribution it created a lot of squad disharmony and obviously you took up the absolute squad cost. The other thing they decided to do was they said, look, our transfers haven't worked in the last couple of seasons, but that doesn't mean we should stop. Because if you stop investing in the team, you you run the risk of falling further behind. So they almost played a more dangerous gamble by saying, let's actually take debt, like a lot of debt, and let's spend it all on subsequent windows and then see how it goes and actually take stock, right? So Griezmann for £110 million, Frankie de Jong for £78 million, a lot of examples of that as well that played out in subsequent seasons, right? And I think it's it's fair to say that most of the transfer decisions actually didn't go as they had planned or anywhere near actually as they had planned, right? And and they sold a lot of those players on a lot. Gerard De La Feu, for example, to Watford, right? Like so many examples that you know, just roll off the tongue. And and that cascaded, John, to a level where um, the when when Juan, when Juan Laporta took over, he actually described Bartomeu's spending as too too much and at the speed of light. Right? That, that's a that's a verbatim quote from him. And when Bartomeu realized that there was no way this was going to work, he actually went to players and, and tried to get them to negotiate down wages. So Im- imagine how funny this looks, right? You've signed players onto these high-wage uh, contracts because you want to lock them down. And then a few months later, you go back to them and say, hey, can you actually take a wage cut right now? Because we can't meet La Liga's FFP and I can't register Memphis Depay, for example, right? So obviously, the players refused to do it. And, and it, was, it became a very big issue. And uh, then, obviously, there's there's accusations that uh, he went ahead and and paid a PR agency to badmouth the players, etc. All of this, obviously, uh, unraveled 
and covid made things a lot worse for barcelona so barcelona were actually one of the worst hit clubs by covid uh, obviously because firstly match day income's huge for barcelona just given the size of the stadium and uh, the fact that it's full basically for every game the second reason was uh, the commercial agreements they had effectively they, they they didn't act fast enough to kind of prepare for what covid was going to bring and they they didn't negotiate the best commercial deals as compared to other clubs real madrid is a good example of actually a club that managed it reasonably well so because of that they suffered uh, through the covid period and la liga's ffp interestingly john actually had no allowances for covid all the other ffps did so the premier league ffp for example allows you to write off pandemic losses right which is why again a lot of clubs that have been making losses continue to be able to spend money in the transfer market la liga didn't la liga actually said ffp remains exactly the same through covid which added to barcelona's problems right and um, and and ultimately i think when when laporta took over he realized there was no way they were actually going to be able to fix this without taking very drastic measures right and the measures they took effectively were to give up a future revenue which is by selling a stake let's say in their tv rights it's a, it's a strange decision because tv rights are actually going to go up exponentially year on year you're basically saying for the next 25 years i'm giving up 25% of a growing revenue stream because i want that money up front today now they had to do it they wouldn't have done it unless they had to do it but because of that that actually got them flexibility right and and they were able to go ahead and i think what was a little strange was they continued to have that gambling mindset of let's go buy levandowski let's go buy rafinha let's go buy jules kunde right and and let's continue to do what hasn't really worked but hopefully now with smarter decision makers behind the scenes right so shavi obviously has a very clear idea of how he wants the team to play the the vision he's aiming for right and they're backing him which is which is probably smart right so it remains to be seen whether all of the decisions they've made will work out going going ahead but that's pretty much why it's it's unraveled and and got into this situation that's why they had to let messi leave even after messi left they were well over la liga's limit uh, on on the squad cost so yeah it's it's just been a a, a complete unraveling from that point and i was actually very surprised that they were even interested or or in the in conversations for lionel messi because It, the the wage implication of that would have just completely ruled out the possibility of them signing anybody else in the window complete and they would have also had to let potentially good players go so in a way it's actually good financially that that didn't happen because it gives them a little more flexibility to plan better for the future yeah and i said i've got a second question about the future um from what you're saying it sounds as though barcelona are starting to get on top of things i suppose my question is how realistic is it as a an outcome that they can get through this because it seems as though they have to continue being successful in order for their financial situation to get less precarious so is there a, a possible world where things don't go well in terms of the on pitch stuff and then that will just have a knock on impact for the off field stuff yeah no you're absolutely right john and 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 that is very much the the gamble that they're making or the bet they've placed that the investments they've made into the squad to back Xavi to, to now work on the stadium they're all with very much the intent of saying look we will be one of the best teams in Europe that's going to happen and and it's not just about la liga and winning la liga it's about doing well in the champions league now crashing out of the champions league in the group stage was actually shocking for barcelona last year they hadn't estimated that they'd actually built the quarter finals of the champions league into their financial projections for last year right so the fact that they crashed out a lot sooner is a big problem right so they're very much betting on the fact that with the players they have if they if they continue to smartly invest in the squad and again smartly is debatable but that's the that's the goal if they continue to do that they will see the on pitch results 
translate into better broadcasting income for better commercial deals uh, they they'll actually then it, it it would potentially snowball into let's let's make a better stadium and obviously the stadium will have its own incremental revenue generating potential so they they believe there'll be a snowball effect with better performances on the pitch and again this goes back to actually the uh, the ethos of barcelona in many ways which is even in the early 2000s when they felt like it was a challenging time the way they came out of it was basically to say let's invest in the squad and let's back a young pep guardiola let's see where he takes the team and let's actually push uh, through smart investment or well, aggressive investment into the squad and obviously that will have a longer term cascading effect as we look at our success over the next few years so they're not a very conservative club right if i if i actually the good contrast is arsenal right so arsenal when they dropped out of the champions league in 1617 the first thing they did was they cut the wages because they realized that there's a chance they won't go back <laughs> into the champions league immediately and there would need to be a period of consolidation right now what that's allowed arsenal to do is build a squad smartly they've taken their time they've obviously brought in good players from the academy and the wages are very much under control and that's enabled their spending now if you look at the last three windows arsenal have gone uh, gangbusters in uh, on transfer spending right and we'll talk about that as well but they've been able to do that because they were conservative when they started out now there there, there are arguments both ways obviously right because the conservative approach is a little bit more longer term and if hey, if the gamble approach works then it's it's probably more immediate success and can also lead to uh, financial stability right so that's the bet that they're making john and you're absolutely right that competitive success is going to be needed and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsn varies by zip code and package high speed internet service required terms and restrictions apply As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Well, let's move on to another club who we've also mentioned already, and that is Chelsea. Chelsea, obviously one of the clubs that have had a recent ownership change. Um, and that ownership has had a very interesting approach to uh, signing players in particular. So let's begin by talking about what Chelsea are doing. They've signed a lot of players. They've signed a lot of players on long contracts. And then they've spent most of this summer selling a lot of players on as well. So what's your take on Chelsea and the way that they've approached particularly the, the buying market? 
I think I think the first thing I have to say there is I'm pretty surprised actually at at, at the levels of spending because Clear Lake Capital, who co-invested with um, with Boli, are actually known to be pretty conservative investors, right? As an investment firm, so I'm very surprised that they've been so aggressive so far. I mean, to put it in context, Chelsea spent 540 million pounds uh, in the last two transfer windows, which is the 22-23 season. That's actually more than their revenue. John in a year, right? Which is um, an alarming amount to actually spend on transfers. Now, uh, I, I think the first thing that needs to be talked about in the context of Chelsea is player amortization and impairment. That's really the thing that people have, it's the buzzword associated with Chelsea these days. And I think it's super significant as well. So what are these two things, right? Firstly, player amortization basically means you take a transfer fee and you divide it over the duration of a player's contract. So how did Chelsea use this to their advantage? They basically signed players on much longer contracts so that the annual charge of that player in their profit and loss statement is that much smaller. So it's like saying if I if I paid 50 million pounds for a player on a two-year contract, that's 25 million pounds a year in my profit and loss statement that I have to write off as an expense. If I sign a player for 50 million pounds on a five-year contract, that's actually just 10 million pounds a year that I need to write off each year in my financials, right? So Mikhailo Mudrik, for example, was signed for 88 million pounds on an eight and a half year contract, which has actually never been done before. It's one of the longest contracts ever uh, that that a player has been signed for. And effectively, that's 10.4 million pounds a year, right? Which is, to Chelsea's credit, uh, they they saw a loophole and they tried to take advantage of it. Now, UEFA have obviously clamped down on that. They've said now that you can't have more than five year contract. I mean, however long you sign a player for, you can amortize over a five year period. You can't actually amortize over the duration of the entire contract, which is good. Again, it keeps this kind of manipulation, if I can call it that, or intelligent accounting. Let's call it that way, right? It keeps it in check. The second thing to talk about is player impairment. What that actually means, John, is um, let's say I signed you, right, for my football club, and I paid 40 million pounds for John McKenzie. I don't know where this is going because I know that impairment is not a good thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) So let's say I signed Joe Devine for 40 million pounds. Yeah, there we go. That's much better. Yeah. Let's let's use that. Let's use that. So Joe Devine, forty million pounds on a four-year contract. That's too much for Joe, I think. That's too much for Joe. It's a bit too much. It's a bit yeah. pricey, but that's Should okay. Say twenty? Paying... Can we do it in twenty? Let's do it in twenty. <laughs> let's do it in twenty. That works well. So so let's say I sign Joe uh, for twenty million pounds on a four-year contract, right? Two years into it, Joe, um, I've written off ten million of of the transfer spend that I've done on Joe, but he's still worth ten million on my books, right? Now I realize Joe's actually not worth ten million at all. He's probably worth more like two million, right? I can choose at the end of year two, to just write off 8 million more of, of Joe's contract. And what that enables for me is going forward in years three and four, I'm actually only taking out a million pounds each year, right? Instead of the five that I would have had to, right? So it's almost like it's it's an accounting fix that allows you to plan ahead for more amortization that's likely to happen in the future. The reason why this is relevant for Chelsea is Chelsea already have, even before the Todd Bowley signings, right? So even before all of that money was spent, they had the highest player amortization in the Premier League. So Chelsea's annual amortization charge uh, is 160 million pounds as per their latest financials, right? Now, this doesn't include any of the Todd Bowley signings, right? So they know this number is going to go up. It, it absolutely has to with the multitude of players that have come in, right? So what they've done is they've taken a 77 million pound impairment loss this year because they know that 160 million is actually going to go up. And why have they done it this year? Because they had Champions League income last year, right? So they could offset the impairment loss with the income last year. Next year, they know they probably they knew probably at that point that there is a good chance they don't have the European 
TV money. They don't have the European prize money. They don't have European income, right? Now that gives you a lot less leeway to actually play with impairment at that point. So they've taken the impairment because they know the amortization is going to go up, and the income is going to go down, right? So that that's the first thing to note with Chelsea is they use amortization and impairment very liberally, right? To 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 make these to manage to fit all the players into the squad. The second thing to note with Chelsea is they use youth player sales to actually offset losses. And they've done this consistently now, right? So the the one thing Chelsea actually do quite well is because they have a strong youth academy, they actually make a lot of money through player sales, right? Now, how player sales actually generate money for football clubs is also worth noting, John. So basically, let's go back to the example. Right? I buy Joe Devine for, for 20 million pounds. Two years into his contract, he's worth 10 million pounds. Let's say somebody comes in and says, I want to buy Joe Devine for 15 million pounds. I make 5 million pounds on Joe Devine. I don't make 15. Right, 15 is what somebody paid for him, but I had 10 on my books anyway. So basically, my net gain there is just 5 million pounds. Now, let's say there was a youth player. Let's say Joe Devine was a youth academy player who I signed <laughs> into the senior team. right? And then I sold him on for 20 million pounds or 15 million pounds. whatever. Let's assume it's 15, right? the same price. I actually earn 15 million pounds on Joe Devine now right? because he was a youth academy player. So I signed him for effectively zero into the main team. Which is why when I look at Chelsea and I look at the sales of players like Tammy Abraham, right, last season, even before we get to Mason Mount, right? So Tammy Abraham last season, Loftus-Cheek potentially now, right, Mason Mount, all of these players are going to generate a lot of direct income for Chelsea, right? And the reason why that's relevant, John, is because that gives them more flexibility again to actually manage financial fair play, right? And it's important to talk about Premier League financial fair play as well a little bit. So... Financial fair play in the Premier League is is a tricky concept. Basically, it means over a three-year period, a club cannot make more than 15 million in losses, right? Now, you'll be surprised at that number, right? So what is 15 million? That's a small number. A lot of clubs make more losses than that. This number can go up to actually 105 million cumulatively over three years if 90 million is actually provided by owners through secured funding. Now, secured funding means no loans, right? It just means you invest more into the club. You would not be surprised to know Todd Bowley and Clear Lake have done that at Chelsea, right, already. So basically, their limit is 105 million of loss over three years. The thing that makes these three years particularly complicated as well is, is COVID, right? So the Premier League also made exceptions for COVID. They basically said you can write off losses for COVID. That's fine. Like you don't need to worry about it. So if you imagine there are massive losses that Premier League clubs have written off in 20, 2021, 21, 22, which is, when, which is primarily the COVID seasons, you're basically now looking at uh, more flexibility, right? They're 105 million. They're nowhere near that 105 million FFP limit, right? So a lot of questions that might be natural here is how can Chelsea keep buying players? They actually can because they're not very close to that limit. Why this summer matters more is because now we move into next year and actually next year, the COVID years go away, right? So actually, I I, I got that wrong. It's 1920 and 2021. Those are the two COVID years. So next year, when I move uh, and, and when we do the same three-year period check, you actually suddenly out of the COVID period, right, in some sense, or one of the years is in, one of the years is out. So the losses that you were able to write off now are a lot less, right? So you need to actually be smart about investment, which is also why Chelsea are now focusing on sales, right? And and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has been very kind there and has actually enabled a lot of sales, right, for Chelsea, which is great, which is great because what that's allowed them to do again is created more flexibility to go out and let's say buy a Moises Caicedo, right, if they, if they, if they wanted to do that. They would never have been able to do it without that, without that flexibility, right? But I do think 
there there will be an end to this crazy spending. I don't think Chelsea can keep doing this because I think clearly capital are very clear as investors that they want to see financial return, right? So they're not they're not the typical investor who let's say doesn't really mind if a football club generates financial return as long as it's winning on the pitch and then we'll see about the financial return later, right? Because they are an investment firm, they want to see financial return and fairly quickly, right? So over a 4-5 year period. So I I would be surprised if they go uh, gangbusters again. unless they man- they managed to offload a lot of the squad. So I know there was a long answer John but hopefully that captures a lot of the nuances around Chelsea what they're trying to do why all of this accounting jugglery is actually important uh, for for us as fans to and and people who watch the game keenly to to, to understand and know about. Hmm. Yeah, and just a quick question on that because we mentioned before when we were talking about Manchester United that a lot of American investors consider football clubs to be assets that will bring them profits in the long term. Do you think that Todd Bowley and Clear Lake Capital will have changed their attitude to that now having spent a season having to deal with some of the financial difficulties that football club ownership brings? Yeah, it's a, that, that that's an interesting one and probably one that they are better suited to answer to be honest, but I definitely think they would have understood what they're up against a little bit more closely now because uh, it's it's actually a lot more complicated. I don't think new owners especially american owners who've kind of owned american sports franchises actually understand how complicated owning premier league football clubs or any football club actually in europe is because of um, firstly the number of financial uh, regulations let's call them regulations call them guidelines that you need to navigate and secondly that you're actually taking bets here right and and those bets may not come off like for example when they brought in graham potter they actually paid a lot of money to brighton to do that so john interestingly chelsea spent I think almost 45 million pounds on literally on manager changes right in the last year so 10 million was Thomas Tuchel's compensation when when he was let go they paid 21 million to Brighton to get Graham Potter and then 13 million to Graham Potter when he left right so that's a lot of money just on managerial changes right so I think they've realized that having the right guy leading the team is important the second thing I think that they've realized is in the Premier League every team actually has considerably good funding considerably good earning potential because the broadcasting income in the premier league is just so high right so so all of those teams are competitive in the transfer market right and it's actually not going to be taken for granted that chelsea finish in the top 6 top 7 top 8 because all those teams are making smart investments they have good managers right and the standard has just gone up and now having finished in the bottom half they've realized broadcasting income is going to go down because they're not going to be in europe right and and that's the other thing that's important for chelsea john actually right is if i look at their revenue growth it's 8% in the last 3 years but it's all broadcasting income match day and commercial income is flat right and and the reason why they that happened is because they won the champions league so if you win the champions league your uefa coefficient goes up you get a lot more tv money both in that season and the next season now they're no longer in europe so the uefa coefficient is going to drop they won't obviously have any tv money from europe next year they won't have as much premier league tv money from last year because they finished in the bottom half so there are a lot of problems right from a revenue generation potential that they will need to think about which is why they've been a little more cautious in this window and i think they absolutely need the pochettino appointment to work because if it doesn't work right firstly again you have a fairly disjointed squad which has been put together by multiple owners over multiple windows and secondly you're you're actually going down a path where you you paying a very massive wage bill and your revenue generation potential is actually dropping right and chelsea's wage to to, to revenue is actually quite high it's it's 71% which is pretty high for a top 6 club it's it's i think only lower um in fact i think it's the highest of the top 6 club premier league top 6 clubs right so it's actually 
important for Chelsea to think about this uh, right now. And and therefore, it's probably a smarter approach to be a little more cautious, get these sales done, get the money in from those sales, and then think about investing in the squad. Having said that, if the Pochettino appointment works, absolutely, it's all hunky-dory, right? Because as we said, that will create a cascading effect on commercial income, TV income, a lot of things going forward. So from one London club that's spending a lot of money in the transfer market to another London club that's spending a lot of money in the transfer market, albeit having a lot more success on the field. Let's talk a little bit about Arsenal. So the big stories with Arsenal at the moment is their spending spree this summer. So Kai Havertz for £160 million is guaranteed. Declan Rice is not quite over the line yet, but they've agreed a fee of £100 plus million. And then Urien Timber is expected to be uh, signing at around €40 million Euros with an additional €5 million Euros in add-ons. So in total, if everything goes to plan, and as at the time of recording that is not the case, but it is looking likely that it will be the case, it does seem as though Arsenal will be spending around £200 million this summer. So the big question, I suppose, is how can Arsenal afford to do this? Absolutely. And and in fact, if I go a little further back, John, they've spent about £300 million in the last two years. So if you add that up, it's £500 million over three seasons, right? Which is huge. Uh, how have Arsenal been able to do this? I think a few reasons that explain it, right? And I know there have been questions about FFP or why are Arsenal not closer to FFP. Arsenal are miles away from being in, in any kind of FFP trouble, right? And, and, and I'll try and explain why that is. Firstly, Arsenal's wages are actually very well managed, as I said earlier, right? So they're basically at a £212 million wage bill, which is £170 million, Just to put it in context, £170 million lower than Manchester United. Manchester United is £384 million, Arsenal's is £212. So that gives them a lot of flexibility on wages to actually like bring players in at good wages, renew the contracts of players like Bukayo Saka, Gabriel Martinelli, who are important for the future of the club at higher wages. It gives them a lot of wage flexibility. That's the first point. The second point is because they're back in the Champions League, earning potential goes up significantly for various reasons for Arsenal. Firstly, their title sponsor is Emirates, obviously, right, both the stadium and the shirt. And Emirates actually uh, have built into their, their sponsorship contract a clause that says if Arsenal play in the Champions League, they get a bigger payout. And they get that payout immediately at the start of the season. So they will earn a lot of money literally without even kicking a ball in the Champions League. Second, the actual Champions League group stage is about 30-40 million uh, in, in euros, right? Which is which is great. And ju- that's just for participating. Assuming Arsenal don't go further, which they very easily could. The third thing, which is which is worthy of note, is, um, is, is Arsenal's amortization is still only the fourth highest in the Premier League, right? So we spoke about Chelsea being the highest. Arsenal still the fourth highest, right? Now, obviously, it'll go up more now when they sign or complete all the signings in this window. But it's still at a fairly manageable level. I would say, right? It's not uh, it's not gone completely off the handle. I think the one thing that Arsenal have faced as an issue and really need to think about is revenue growth, right? So if I look at the last five years, 2017 to 22, Arsenal's revenues actually declined by 13% in that period, right? So it was £423 million in 2017. It's £369 million in 2022. Now, in comparison, if I look at Tottenham Hotspur, for example, their biggest rivals, they actually grew revenue by 45% in the same period. Right? And Tottenham actually went from having literally 40% less revenue than Arsenal to 20% more now. Right? And, and a big part of that is actually commercial revenue, where Arsenal are... Actually, the commercial engine is much weaker, I would say, than the other Premier League clubs. And that's something that they need to invest in and push further. Now that they have Champions League qualification, I imagine they will 100% be doing that. But 
commercial revenue for Spurs now is 30% higher than Arsenal, right? Which is interesting because it was lower in 2017, right? So again, Spurs have managed to accelerate very quickly. And you look at all the other clubs, Man City, Liverpool, even Manchester United's commercial revenue is, is well above Arsenal's, right? So that's the first step is how do we actually build commercial revenue uh, as a very meaningful stream of revenue, right? We spoke about revenue mix earlier. Arsenal actually have the highest reliance on matchday income, right? 24%. So they were actually very affected by COVID again because very high reliance on matchday income, which basically went to zero during COVID. So right now, Arsenal are in a, in a good position to spend heavily, John, also because, again, so as, as, I, as I add these things up, one, Champions League qualification will have a snowball effect on revenue. Second, their wage bill is actually very low. So it gives them a lot of flexibility to sign players on higher wages. The third thing is the Premier League FFP COVID regulations, which we spoke about, right? So uh, because Arsenal had such heavy losses during COVID, they can basically write off massive amounts of losses and they're nowhere near the FFP limit, right? So Arsenal's pre-tax loss was, I think, the cumulative loss was £160 million pounds or so, if I if I look at the data over the last three years. And, and their COVID losses are actually estimated at being pretty much that. So they can effectively wipe out the entire thing and that gives them £105 million of, of flexibility, right, to spend. Now, remember, this is um, a cumulative loss. So obviously, there are other elements that that kind of come into it. But because they have that COVID flexibility now, and they won't have it, as, as we discussed earlier, right, next season, this is the right time, if you think about it, for Arsenal to actually go big and really strengthen the squad. I don't expect Arsenal to continue doing this in subsequent seasons. I, I don't think they will need to, actually, because they've, they've kind of built... Again, a very young squad, a very good squad. If, if they tie players down to long-term contracts, I think it's a, it's a very well-set-up, well-structured squad. And, uh, and and it will not need, that, that's what they're banking on, it will not need significant further investment going forward. So I, I actually think Arsenal are fairly well-placed financially. And, and therefore, there's actually no danger of, of violating FFP or even getting close to it, despite all the spending we've seen. Yeah, so we talked before about Barcelona when they dropped out of the Champions League, that being an issue. And you said that Arsenal were actually quite conservative when they fell out of the Champions League spots. How much of this now is about them cementing their place in the top floor for the next, in their, I guess, in their hopes, decade or so? Absolutely. I, I think it's uh, it's it's 100% about that, John. But I, I also think, just given Mikel Arteta's standards as a manager, he's probably thinking, how do we just absolutely get better versus last year? So how do we get more points? How do we score more goals? How do we potentially challenge even more closely, right, for the title? If they were that close last year and nobody expected them to be, this season, they actually have a better squad now. They've brought in one of the best defensive midfielders in the world. They're, they're bringing in Urien Timbo, offers them a lot of flexibility in many different positions, right? And I, I think they've been smart with the way that they've they've recruited, right? So if I look at Martin Odegaard, for example, Ben White, all of these guys, there was a lot of money spent on Ramsdale, for example, which, which was questioned at the time, but they've actually been embedded into the squad really well and and have actually fit into the plan very 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 effectively right and i'm i think the one transfer that intrigued me was kai Havertz, so i'm interested to see how they kind of fit him in but i'm sure there's a plan right so uh, absolutely you're right that it's now about cementing their place in the top four but i also think just given arteta's ambition as as a manager and his pursuit of excellence i think this is also about the title actually right and i think he's realized that this is a window where they've brought in seriously high quality talent to push that to that extra level right last season there were a couple of injuries obviously Zinchenko was injured Jaka was injured for a bit so they didn't actually get the full squad firing through the season as often as they may have liked to 
despite what Eric Ten Hag's been saying. Um, but this season, I think they actually have the depth as well, right? So if I look at that squad, that this is a squad that should be challenging, not just for the title, but potentially to do well in the Champions League as well. So yes, you're right. I think it is about that that conservative. I'm sure the owners are still a little bit more conservative in that sense of uh, of saying, look, let's cement top four. Let's make sure that we make sure we never drop out of there again. Right, but equally, I also think there's a lot of ambition now, and and it's actually moved from hey, we've been conservative, we've managed our finances well, let's now see how we can be a little bit more aggressive and push this because I actually think that's healthy in a way as well, right? Because if you're aggressive, you can actually push it, and uh, and 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 it drives more growth going forward. Well, Abby, I could talk to you about football finances for for days, months, years. Uh, but we do have to draw this to a close. Uh, it's been great having you on. I've got you down on Twitter as at Abhi Raj. So A-B-H-I-P-S-Y-C-H-R-A-J. Uh, I know you have an Instagram account as well where you post videos regularly as well. And if our listeners haven't had enough of you by that point, uh, you also do a lot of writing for us over at TIFO as well. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, yeah, excited to excited to work with you guys more going forward. 